0: Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my pleading die. The scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. It's found on page 947 of the Pew Bible. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. uh, Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together. Lord, we pray that you would use this word to break our hearts, to refresh our hearts, to bring us, grow us, Lord, in our love of you, in our awe of you, to... Chisel us and form us more into your image, more of what you want us to be, that we might glorify your name. O Lord, bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen. This passage in Romans 11 ends with this glorious statement in verse 36. From him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. And really the solas are all driven by that idea that everything depends upon God and there is nothing else, no one else, that we depend on or look to except God Himself. And whatever means He gives us uh, through the church, ultimately we are looking to God Himself. And so uh, the first four solas lead up to the final Solely. Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so uh, that's why I've really begun with this passage, not so much that I'm going to do an exposition of this passage, but this whole idea because this comes at the end of Paul's whole laying out of the salvation of God. He's talked about how we gain forgiveness and a right standing with God, how our lives are transformed by God, how God deals with Jew and Gentile in history. And here he says, as the apex of it all, right before he lands into this practical uh, exhortations and commands beginning in chapter 12, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And really, that's the whole of our lives as believers. Our own shorter catechism says that's the very end of our life. The chief end is to glorify and enjoy God forever. And so each one of these will be pointing to that. I want that to be the atmosphere uh, of of our consideration of each of the solas. Well, the outline's pretty easy this morning. Uh, You've had it in your bulletin already. And we'll go in the same order of those uh, solas. We go with sola scriptura first because it is the means by which we know everything about God and know about ourselves and know about life, really. Sola scriptura, the scriptures alone, the the sinful tendency of man is to place something at least beside the word... As another authority. And it seems to be innocent at at the beginning. We're not denying the authority of the Word. We're just sneaking up something else to be alongside it. We would not say anything wrong with the Bible itself. Not at all. But simply to put another authority to look at as well. Inevitably, always, this means that that authority begins to come over and instead of that word and becomes the interpretive framework or lens for that word. And therefore, it transforms and uh, corrupts that word, not in itself, but as how it's proclaimed. So the alternative revelation ends up being above the word and in place of the word. And when you consider the condition of the church at the time of the Reformation... That for centuries, the the Bible had not even been in the language of people. They didn't even hear anything when they went to church in a language they understood. And so, you have complete lockdown, complete control. We can tell you whatever we want to about its meaning. And... Many times, people even now would urge the difficulty of the word and the inability of the average person to interpret it, and how you shouldn't touch it. I remember, uh, as when I was in college, I was working with Campus Crusade. I was in Atlanta for a conference, and at the hotel I was at, I—and I'm not saying that every priest would be like this—but I got a little taste for this attitude. I began talking to a priest. He was in a collar. He was a Catholic priest. And I began talking to him about Jesus and uh, salvation by faith. And not only did he tell me that I had no business looking at the Word, but there were several uh, well-chosen epithets that he hurled at me in the process uh, for me to think that I had any right to say anything about the Bible, to interpret it in any way. That was the church's responsibility, not mine. Well, you can imagine when you can't even get to it that the interpretation should be left to priests or authorities. And when it's not in the common language, this power, this control is absolute. Then you really can raise money through indulgences and Tetzel, as he apparently was doing in Wittenberg, it's attributed to him the little couplet, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from Purgatory Springs. But who knows any different? That's what they say. They tell us that there is this place called purgatory. They tell us that no matter what happens in this life, that we will still have to spend in who knows how long in this place of terrible suffering. And if I give some money, I could release my dear mother from suffering. How could I not? And you know no differently. No differently. Well... Always, there's this effort to distance people from the Word, to make your knowledge and interpretive abilities unique. And this can happen in, in many ways, aberrant interpretations that are placed over the Word when the Word is taken out of its context. And verses are pieced together in a way that was not intended and you make it say what you want to say and you pour it out to people. And this becomes the new authority. Or we base our authority on what the Spirit has told us. The Spirit revealed this to me. And it's uh, put over and opposed to the Word. Uh, so that this authority is all the more because I have a secret word from God. How can you, how can you go against something that I heard from God even though it disagrees with what is here in black and white, the Word of God. And so uh, we are faced with with competing revelations uh, from all around us. And this is what the Reformation was setting us free from. So that our attitude should be the same, any teacher's attitude, as that of, The Bereans in Acts 17 and uh, apparently Luke's attitude as he was speaking about these people. Paul had been thrown out of Thessalonica after three weeks. And he gets to Berea and Luke writes, the people in Berea were more noble than those of Thessalonica because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Well, any teacher wants that. Any preacher wants that. But you see the combination. They both received it with eagerness and examined it carefully to see if those things were true. So, we want you to know the Word. The more you know the Word, the more you will enjoy exposition of the Word and the more you will recognize when you're not getting the Word. And together we are seeking to stand under the word and to understand that word. So rather than uh, having you here and me as a barrier to only source through the word, it's as though you and I are standing together and I'm pointing to that word, eagerly wanting to for you to examine the very word to which I'm pointing, to see these things that are in the word. Because it is the scripture alone. I have no authority. The session has no authority. The church has no authority apart from this word that we speak to you. And our society, interestingly, is much like the medieval society because it was an image-based society, not a content-based society. Images everywhere within the church, of course, Images by the mystery plays that were done, the only knowledge they might even have in in their own language of a a play being done of different events in Scripture. And then in worship itself, just watching the Mass as a performance that you don't even understand the full meaning of it, but you just go up and you get the bread and you get the wine. Or the bread in that case at at that time. But all of this was sight. It was spectacle. No content in worship. No explanation of the Bible in worship. And today is very much the same. We're such an image-based society. And often people define their relationship with God merely in terms of experience, not realizing my experience of God has to be mediated through the Word. I... I don't have access to God. I don't know who he is, what he is, what he wants, what he promises, what he commands, except as it's given to me through this word. Your relationship to God can only be as broad and as deep and wonderful as your relationship to finding him in the word. And so it is a word-based relationship, even as Peter is... Able to say in Second Peter 1, and you've heard this before, that we have these precious uh, promises from God by which we partake of the divine nature. Amazing statement. Promise by which we partake of God. The Word is the means by which we partake of God We pray that word to Him. We use the promises and the commands of God and the will of God and the purposes of God. They form the basis for our prayers. Even the word has the example for us of unloading your burdens and your pain before Him. It commands us to do that. That's why we unload our burdens because this is what the word tells. Everything is based upon this word. And so we must guard against also psychology or sociology or political ideology or marketing or anything else that would dictate to us how, when, and how we should preach the Word of God. No, we proclaim the Word of God as God has given it to us. And so I would leave you with these uh, few things uh, to consider as sola scriptura. Uh, One is that... I, Kay and I were talking even this morning about the day that I was going along Granbury. It was one more once I think it was a Sunday morning, and it was real foggy and it was rainy, and I, I couldn't see very well. and I thought if I just follow the curb, I can't be wrong, right? I just I just follow the curb, I'll be okay. Well, I didn't think about that. There is a turn in for a little road, and of course at the other end of that turn in is a curb. You see what I'm talking about? So follow the curb and then you hit a curb is what would have happened. Well, I, I missed it by just a couple of feet, but it scared it scares me now as I talk about it <laughs> that I came that close to hitting that. And I think that's a great analogy if in the fog and rain and the storms of this world, if you are following the curb of your own thinking or the world's thinking or anything else outside of the Word of God, it is a false thing to fix your hope on. It is a false thing to line up your life. We must have the light of His Word. It is sola scriptura. And so that means that you must search the Word for yourself. Yes, it is. the the Reformers always taught the need for teachers, the need for the church to set forth the Word of God, to interpret that Word. But uh, along with that, coupled with that, uh, is your own searching the Word for yourself. You have the happiest privilege and responsibility, the blessing of knowing and living out the Word of the living God, the blessing of knowing the God that is revealed in this Word. Now, if you've not had any experience in studying the Word, if you find it very hard to get into it, there is a paper on the back. It's titled P U P P U M A Puma, okay? But it's an outline for how to take a little section of God's Word and to really begin to understand it. It also explains how to do a reading as well, a reading through the Bible. But if you need some help in a very practical way, Uh, I urge you to pick that up. But each one of you, will you, can you, even as you sit here today, ask the Lord to give you grace to say, I will be by your grace, Lord, with the opportunity given me, with all my other responsibilities, yes, I commit, Lord, by your grace to be a man or or a woman of your word. That I I will receive this privilege you've given me. And that will mark my life to be a man or woman of the Word. Every one of us. Every one of us. You know how they say 80% of the uh, work of the church is done by 20% of the people. Gosh, it it may be in some churches 90% of the reading of the Word is done by 5% of the people. Who knows? But may it be all of us entering into this privilege. And the second part of that is get the Word into your life. That's the whole object. That was the whole object for the reformers. Not just to know this word, but to live it out. Coram Deo, in the presence of God. God is present to us always. We want to live out and reflect this word in the whole of our lives. I love that little commercial. It's the traveler's insurance commercial. The little fuzzy white dog. You know, the commercial begins, he's on his little couch... And the first thing you see is a paw on a bone in his dish, and his his tr- and then Ray Lamontagne is singing "Trouble, trouble, trouble, trouble" right in the background, which I love, Ray Lamontagne. So it's a great little commercial. Well, he he he's, he wants to hide this bone so it'll be safe, and so he first puts it in the the clothes hamper, you know the the and. He thinks it's hidden, and no, that's not good enough. And then you see him, he's put it under the rug, but he's looking at that, and you can see it, obviously, under the rug. No, that's not going to do. And so he, he puts it under a cushion by the couch, but it shows him looking and the guy's sitting his his master's sitting on it and that's not gonna do. He can see that. So he goes outside and he's digging in the ground and he gets real nervous because a cat runs by, you know. He's like, oh the cat's gonna so at night he's looking out the window, you know, where he dug to make sure the cat doesn't come and get it. And finally he you see him getting on the bus. He's at the bus stop, gets on the bus, he's got the bone in his mouth, driving down and he sees a bulldog walking by and he ducks down because he knows the bulldog might see this bone in his mouth and he finally gets to the safety deposit box at the bank. But that night he's dreaming, he's having nightmares of the bulldog and the cat and the empty uh, box and it shows him just running the next day, he looks like he's been set free and he's, then it shows him in the backyard playing and relaxed and at peace and Then you see the traveler's umbrella over the bone. He's okay now. Travelers is taking care of it, right? Well, that's a great commercial. Just you got to look for it. You can see it on YouTube if you want to. So, (laughs) don't do it on your phone right now. Okay? (laughs) Oh, here. I got it. I got it. Come over here. But. I've used this in the past. Well, I used it before I saw this commercial in a shorter way, and now you get the longer version. But that idea of his nervousness to get that bone hidden away safely, that should be you and me with the Word of God to think... Lord, I must get this word into my life. Whatever I've heard, whatever I've studied, whatever I'm meditating on, whatever I memorize, Lord, the whole point is that this would be safely tucked into my life, so to speak, so that it is being lived out. That's the object. Not just that I know it. You must know it to do it. You must. But the whole object is to live it out. Sola Scriptura. And there is no other word but that word and how precious it is. Give our lives up to it. And this word sets forth, of course, solus Christus. We don't find God. God finds us. God comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the only way of knowing what God is really like. The only way of entering into a relationship with Him as Father And he is the only self-revelation of God, the only incarnate self-revelation of God. And all revelation in the Old Testament anticipates this revelation of God in Christ. All of that revelation prepares for this revelation of Christ and leads up to this revelation of Christ. It is the revelation of God on earth. And wonderfully, he reveals himself in Christ as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, the one who serves his people even to the point of shedding his blood for them and bearing the punishment that they deserve for what they've done against him. And then to say, as sadly, here's here's a statement with which two-thirds of evangelicals did not find objectionable. Two-thirds. Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and others all pray to the same God even though they use different names for that God. And he says, Varna says, The difference between the responses of those who regularly attend church services and those who are unchurched is almost nil. So what are we getting in our churches? But to say that this revelation of God, this sacrifice of His own Son, even this idea of God, this teaching that He is Father, Son, and Spirit, lived and and He's existed eternally in this relationship, and God the Father spins His Son for the sake of His people, and it is none other than God Himself who comes to us. There is nothing remotely similar, not even remotely similar, in any other religion. If it is right, they can't be right. If they are right, this can't be right. It can't be. And if anything goes in terms of getting to God, then why the sacrifice? Why bearing the very wrath of the Father if it really didn't matter? If anything could have done, he could make up any idea of God at all because these run the gamut. And so, one-third of evangelical seminarians, James Hunter writes, and one-third of evangelicals say that belief in Christ is not necessary for salvation and that God will save all good people when they die, regardless of whether they've trusted in Christ i urge you make christ the centerpiece of your life make him every day the very goal of your life memorize these statements or at least the ideas where paul says for me to live is christ that that defines me that I'm giving myself to Him and seeking Him. And Paul said in the encounter of Christ as a Pharisee, I count everything as loss, rubbish, garbage, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness which, uh, from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. You see, the full identity, the aching of Paul to have Christ, to know Christ, to delight in Christ, to reflect Christ. In his prayer in Ephesians 3, that we might know the love of God revealed in Christ. And so, combining this, you see, with Scripture alone sets forth Christ alone. And Scripture is setting forth Christ. If you miss Him, if if He doesn't become the centerpiece of your life, then you've missed the whole point of the Bible, Old and New Testament. May He become the love of your heart, the delight of every day. And that that is a high standard. That is... A, a, a glorious privilege. But again, if the Word, if, if it's the privilege to to live out His Word, it's your privilege to be under the care of this shepherd and to know more and more of this shepherd day by day to explore Him like you would a beautiful land. And all of this means sola gratia. You may be familiar with this song from uh, The Sound of Music. When Julie Andrews and the captain were singing the duet, perhaps I had a wicked childhood, perhaps I had a miserable youth, but somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are, standing there, loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. (laughs) Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. But something does come from nothing, doesn't it, in the gospel? I bring nothing. I have no. Re- there is no reason for God to show me mercy. It comes from Him. It's not because of me. It's not because of anything He sees in me. Nothing I've done good that has brought this. He initiates it into my life. You know, the uh, story, fictitious, but it makes the point of the guy who fell off the cliff and on the way down he grabs a branch and he's holding on but he can't pull himself back up and he's calling out to people for help. Is there anyone up there who can help me? And then this voice booms down. I'm here. I can help you. But first you're going to have to let go of that branch. He's thinking for a moment and then he looks up and says, is there anyone else up there who can help me? You know, As a statement of I don't want to let go of myself and my own doing, my own earning, my own capability in order to lay hold of Christ. Is there anybody else that can help me on different terms? Where I can leave some of me in there, some of my earning, some of my desert, something that points to me. I love years ago hearing that radio program of Jack Benny, uh, who was a tight known for being such a tightwad and, So he's walking down the alley and he's just on the radio. So you're just hearing voices. And this guy says, all right, bud, your money or your life? Just long pause. The guy says, well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Just doesn't want to part with his money. He'd rather die than do that, you know. And I think we would rather die almost. In fact, many do rather die than to fully rest in Jesus Christ for alone their salvation, that it's grace alone. And one of the subtle things that uh, Martin Luther was stricken by, and many today, that God makes you good enough to finally be acceptable. And this drove Martin Luther crazy because he always saw sin in his life. But Paul says in this very book of Romans that he justifies the ungodly It's a shocking statement. It doesn't make you good enough. And then when you get good enough, he says, okay, now I declare you acceptable. Because even by his own grace that I've made you good enough, now you're acceptable. No, he declares acceptable. He declares received. He declares justified, not guilty, ungodly. How in the world? That is grace, you see. That is grace, not based on anything of me. You know those come-as-you-are parties on a Saturday morning? Somebody knocks at the door at 7 o'clock and you have to come in your pajamas. Can't get ready, right? I mean, you put enough on, that's okay, okay. But you just come in your pajamas, you come as you are. And I think it's a good image for the way the gospel just interrupts us. It just interrupts us. God's not waiting, sitting back. Well, as soon as they make this and this and this and this. No, the gospel just comes and interrupts you. It may, it may carry you along in all the things that he does, getting you involved perhaps with the church or another person and unveiling the word, but it finds us dead. It finds us lost. It finds us with our backs turned. It interrupts us. And then it says, come as you are. Come as you are. Now, it doesn't leave us there. We begin to be changed, but we come. And we're always in that condition of acceptance only because we are associated with Jesus Christ and His righteousness and His forgiveness. Permanently joined to Christ. And so Luther, one of his favorite phrases was, Simu justus et peccator. Simu simultaneously justus justified and sinner. At the same time, that just fascinated him because he had such a struggle for seeing sin in his life and thinking that I can't be accepted by God. And then the freedom to say, it's not the freedom to sin as you want, but the freedom to at least say, though I still see sin in my life, I am accepted by God permanently, forever, and I can work on my sin. I can begin to delve in and figure out why I do the things I do. I can search out my heart, my terrible heart, my terrible attitudes at times, knowing that God's not pushing me away. I'm justified in Christ, accepted in Christ, and I have the freedom to change and grow in Christ. And of course, what follows so closely with that, sola gratia is sola fide. Notice the connection of grace and faith in Ephesians 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Romans 4.16. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. They have to come together. As he says in Romans five we've obtained access by faith into this grace. And even as... as uh, was mentioned earlier, alluded to by uh, Ben, this faith comes from him. I, I might even be saying, Lord, I don't know if I can believe. I don't feel like I have the capacity to trust in you. I can't even trust my own faith. And yet we can come and fall before him and just say, Lord, grant me all that I need. Grant all the resources that I need, Lord, to come to you. For Jesus himself said in John 8, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And that's why we, I want to put it this way, we get to come to him like the people who are being healed. We get to come to him and just cry out. And I urge people all the time in counseling, get used to saying the word, save me. Sometimes think that this is only, you know, originally one time, but... Salvation continues and we always are needing to be saved. We can always helplessly cry out, Lord, rescue me from this. Rescue me from this fear. Rescue me from this attitude. Rescue me from this sinful habit. Oh, save me. Heal me. It's all of faith. It's all trusting him and nothing of what I do, but only what Christ does for me. And you've heard me say this before, but I picture, uh, for me, I I had to rethink my whole life of of thinking that I could get to God through my works, and for me, the great picture was have a table between me and God, and all my works are sitting on the table, some terrible and others that I thought were pretty good, but... Then in the light of His glory, nothing looks good in all. And then to see God sweep it all off the table and says, nothing that you do, good or bad, has any bearing on this transaction. No bearing at all. And then He places on the table all of the doing and the resources of Jesus Christ. How about trusting in Him instead of all those works? (laughs) That's it. That's it. He sets forth His own Son with His unlimited resources, with His perfect capacity to deliver you from sin and to gain acceptance and forgiveness before God. And here's the Father saying, Take Him. Believe in Him. He's yours. Believe in my Son. Sola fide, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, the Scriptures alone. All issuing in soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. And so, in this, to glorify Him, to bring Him honor, we would give our lives to Him. We, it means to rejoice greatly in Him, to be in awe of Him, to delight in Him, to live all of life for Him and all of life in His glorious presence. to to want to know Him and be like Him and manifest Him in our lives, to make Him known to us. We want others to acknowledge Him. That's some of the makeup of soli deo gloria. Basically, I think soli deo gloria means a love affair with God, a love affair with Jesus Christ, adoration. Michael Horton writes this, How can we expect the world to take God and His glory seriously if the church does not? The Reformation slogan, Soli Deo Gloria, was carved into the organ at Bach's church in Leipzig. And the composer signed his works with his initials. It's inscribed over taverns. I'm sorry if you're Baptist, but that was true. Uh, It is inscribed over taverns and music halls in old sections of Heidelberg and Amsterdam, a lasting tribute to a time when the fragrance of God's goodness seemed to fill the air. It was not a golden age, but it was an amazing recovery of God-centered faith and practice. Columbia University professor Eugene Rice offers a fitting conclusion all the more. The Reformation's views of God and humanity... Measure the gulf between secular imagination of the 20th century and the 16th century's intoxication with the majesty of God. Sole Deo Gloria is an intoxication with the majesty of God. And then he speaks of this total supreme liberty in abandoning human weakness to the omnipotence of God. Supreme liberty in abandoning your human weakness into the omnipotence of God. To know He cares for you. To know that He loves you. That He has given His Son for you. That He rules all things for the sake of His people and for His glory. How? What a tiny, pathetic religion. And it's not true religion. It's what we call the health and wealth gospel when... We want a God to give us some more stuff. Really? God, this is what I want you for. I need more stuff. When those who are fixed and intoxicated with the majesty of God say, take my life, I don't care. I want you and I want your glory. Remove it all from me. It's fine. I want you, Lord God. And your glory. And so, as we will sing, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth is still. His kingdom is forever. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. Amen. Let us pray. Fix our hearts, O Lord, upon your majesty of you. Through you and to you are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever. Set us free, Lord, from our fears. Set us free from our idols. Set us free from our ways of coping with life that are not not trusting you, not delighting in you, not looking to you, depending on you. Give us grace, Lord, that we will be people of the Word, people of Christ, people of grace, people of faith, people dedicated to the glory of God. And if there is anyone here who has not given up to Jesus Christ, draw them even now. Even as you did to Lydia in Acts 16, it says, you open up her heart to receive the things spoken by Paul. Even now, Lord, may you open up hearts to receive the word of Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful.